You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. We preserve the history and sport of hunting through curious conversation and action-packed hunts, as well as offering you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. Welcome back to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. This is episode number 160. I'm joined by Trent from Chest Thumper Outdoors. How's it going, man? Are you on the side of the highway doing the podcast? Good. Yeah. So I, I'm pulled over in front of an old gas station. Uh, I'm headed to Utah. And why? So I'm about three quarters of the way through Kansas. So I do all the photography, videography, marketing, and social media for something called Mountain Archery Fest. Uh, it's a lifestyle shoot, kind of in the same vein as Tack. It's more family oriented, though. You know, we, Brandon is the CEO of the company. He really wants to build something that the whole family can come and enjoy the weekend, even if the family's not necessarily into archery. So there's kind of an emphasis on the courses are fun to just hike, and there's cool scenery on the courses as well. So even if, you know, mom and kiddo wants to hike along with dad while dad shoots, or, you know, dad and kiddo want to hike along with mom while mom shoots or whatever, there's still kind of stuff to do. You know, we put some vendors together, usually have food trucks, try to keep it interesting. That's fun because I feel like every year that I go to TAC, I realize how small and how big the archery community is. I see a ton of people that I know and it always encourages me. Do you get pretty encouraged when you're out doing the mountain archery stuff? Yeah, man. I mean, what's been amazing for me, uh, this is my first year with them and I've been to Georgia, Pennsylvania, Utah once already in Colorado with these guys. And it's like, every time I go somewhere, I meet new people, but it's like, we've known each other forever. And it just, it makes me feel, it makes me feel a lot less, uh, I guess, overall negative about the community. Cause you know, if you look at social media, there's always those guys that are like, ah, oh, it's over commercialized and it's this and that and the other. And when you do the kind of stuff we do, sometimes it's easy to get pounded with that just over and over and over again. So I go and meet these guys that are just like me, just like you, that just love to shoot a bow, love to hunt. And it completely, it's so refreshing. I mean, it's, it's like, I, I don't even know the best words to describe it, man. It's just, it's a good feeling to know that there's just the average Joe, the average guy like us out there that just loves what we're doing. Yeah. It's, it's easy to get people the wrong way too on, on social media. I was watching a, working class bow hunter uh, podcast the other day uh, with a uh, entitled it the most hated hunter on TikTok. It's a, uh, with a guy it's Iowa whitetail guy. And yeah, so I love him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I saw his, uh, I saw him on the podcast. And I was like, this guy's a really nice dude. He's a really normal. Yeah. Nice so guy. we've, I, I kind of interacted with him a few times on TikTok. Um, and not in a negative connotation. unlike most people, like we've had some positive interactions just in comments and stuff like that. And he's very much not the type of guy he kind of portrays himself as on TikTok. I watched that same podcast and he mentions in there, he just gives back the energy that he gets. You know, I, I, on one level, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, I've got some, I've got some snippy TikToks myself where it's just kind of like, sometimes they just kind of push you over the edge a little bit and you got, you got to snap back a little bit, but I'm not quite as extreme as he is. Yeah. Some people got the personality for it and some people don't. I'm not that, I'm not that bold, but anyway, <laughs> so what have you, if you had a good spring or, or summer or what, what are you up to as far as hunting, hunting this fall before we jump into some of the broadheads? So, we weren't so I uh, went to, <laughs> 
I'll just, May was a very busy month for me. So I was in Pennsylvania with Mountain Archery Fest in the beginning of May. And I got home and was home for three days. And then I, uh, then I left and went to Montana on a black bear hunt. And then I was home for a day and then I left again for Utah the first time. So uh, my spring has been awesome. I did have a successful black bear hunt. I went on a guided hunt with a guide that is kind of a client with mine. I'm working with him, helping him on some marketing stuff. And it was a freaking amazing experience. My first time hunting out West and um, in Montana of all places, I feel unbelievably blessed for that to be a case. So that's kind of been my hunting. I'm um, in the spring. I didn't draw a Turkey tag. So in Illinois, you have to draw Turkey tags and it's weird seasons. I didn't draw a Turkey tag. Um, and I'm not honestly a huge Turkey hunter anyways. It's yeah. not, I mean, it's not really my thing. It's, it's okay. Uh, more, more than anything, it's fun to hang out with my buddies while we do that. But, um, and then everything else has just been this rotation of gone for a week from mountain archery fest home for six days, gone for a week. So I've not had a ton of downtime. Usually when I'm home, I'm building arrows or setting up bows to ship out or uh, building my own stuff or editing video and, and pictures and stuff like that for mountain archery fest. So mm -hmm. my own personal social medias have slacked a lot, yeah. uh, but I've been loving every single minute of it. How was the, I just got back from Canada for a black bear hunt, drove through Montana and I was so encouraged because I realized I live in a very populated place in central Texas. And I realized, you know what, if everything does go to crap, there's still land for us to expand into. <laughs> so how was, uh, how was your black bear hunt? Did you do bow? Did you rifle? You said you went out for it was, that as well. It was bow. Um, and it was cool. So the guy that I went with, he's a third generation guide. Um, his name is Michael Ritchie. He's got a guide service called Steel Creek Outfitters, and he's a really, really salt of the earth dude. It was actually my first time ever meeting him, and me and a buddy drove out. A really cool situation. I got to take a buddy whose dream hunt was black bear on that hunt, his first Western hunt also. He's only been bow hunting for six years, um, and I got to take him out, and, and we got to do this hunt together. So watching that was cool, but the stark contrast between like Illinois, where I'm from, and Montana whole completely different world and we did them with we did uh bears with dogs which oh, okay. before that hunt i i didn't necessarily dislike the idea of hound hunting it just wasn't ever anything that really interested me mm -hmm. uh, but this is this is this guy's passion so he, and he told us he goes you know we can try to spot and stalk but where rats really thick and i just don't know if it's going to work and he wasn't kidding uh he's got a huge area to work with and of that huge area he's probably got 300 acres that is actually glassable everything else is just thick timber which 300 acres to us sounds like a lot but when you consider his his guide area is probably 40,000 acres yeah like that's that's nothing but we went out and we did the the dog thing and i honestly don't know that i want to bear hunt any other way now really but dude when you're driving along, so they put the dogs in the box and then they put one up on top of the box and that dog is smelling for a bear. And when they hit the track, they go berserk. And I'm a big upland game hunter. Like I love watching the dogs work and do their thing anyways, you know, duck dogs. I just, there's something about that that's almost mesmerizing to me. So to watch mm -hmm. these dogs, which is like that on steroids is unbelievable. When you're driving along and you're just BSing and having a good time and that dog goes nuts. 
you jump out of the truck and he unhooks that dog and it jumps off a freaking cliff and down into the woods barking. And then he lets the, Oh man, talk about freaking adrenaline. Totally would have never understood until I went out there and experienced it. And after experiencing it, I don't know that black bear hunting any other way would be as exciting. Man, that does sound a lot more exciting than what we did. We just shot him over bait, but with dogs, so you guys were just driving and you'd cut a track off the road and, or with the yeah. dogs, just really, that's so fun. Yeah. So, so basically, and that was the other cool thing about it, right? You know, shooting them over bait, you go out, you set a tree stand. It's similar to whitetail hunting, yeah. same principle, you know, you, you set and you wait, um, for us, it almost reminded me of kind of duck hunting. I don't know if you've done much waterfowl or not, oh, yeah. but you sit in the blind, you BS with the buddies. And then when the ducks come in, you get down, you be quiet. Well, it's similar here. We drove around, we BS, we laughed, we ate snacks, we had a good time. But the minute that dog cut a track, got that scent and started going nuts, it was game on. And it was, it was, it was go time, dude. And you get to see so much beautiful country doing that. Cause we're taking two tracks up mountains and kicking into four wheel drive. And at one point he had to lower the pressure in his tires to get through this like two and a half foot deep snow bank. And I mean, so it's a whole adventure, dude. We were cutting up trees and throwing them off the trail and to me, I'm a big adventure guy. Like hunting for me is all about the adventure. I'm terrible yeah. about even, even home. I'm terrible about, all right, walking with the buddies and they get set up in their trees. And I'm like, I'm going to go just, you know, 300 yards this way and set up. And then I get back there and it's like, what's over that hill? What's over that hill? And next thing I know, it's got 40 minutes of shooting light left. I'm like, I need to be in a tree somewhere. This is bad. Yeah. So that type of hunting where you're driving around and doing the adventure and exploring was just unbelievable for me. Yeah, that that sounds very similar to the the way they uh, hunt mountain lions, like out west, right? Too with the dogs, it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. It, the one the one difference to so this guy also is big into mountain lions. Um, he cut his teeth with his dad in Idaho, where they've been able to chase black bears with hounds for a long time, and then also cats. So that's kind of where he learned and where his dogs got trained up. And Montana just got hounds last year, oh. and. Uh, so it's fairly fresh in Montana, but the cats have been like that for a long time. And he told me the only big difference is with a cat, you're kind of going along on snow machines or snowmobiles, whatever you want to call them. And you'll find fresh tracks because it's usually thick snow and you can kind of tell what's going on with a bear. A lot of times you're not seeing a track. Like most of the times when those dogs were going crazy, we weren't seeing tracks at all. There was no indication there was a bear there. The dogs could just smell it. Wow. So it's kind of a whole other level of of excitement because you just don't know another cool thing is he, he kind of explained the difference between a cat and a and a bear and he said with a cat generally speaking if he cuts a track he feels confident he can tree that cat whether it's that day or the next day with a bear you just don't know so for example my buddy's bear that he shot the dogs went probably 11 miles chasing that bear before they treated wow so those dogs are going insane with my bear, you know, it wasn't, I bet it was five. The dogs did, you know, so it's just a whole different world. And then I guess bears are way less, um, predictable once they're in the tree. And he, I mean, this guy, like I said, he's in love with it. So he was explaining all the intricacies. Another thing it's cool to see somebody that loves and so passionate about something, talk about it. You know, so yeah, it's a, I would highly recommend if you've ever black bear hunted and you want to experience a whole new world, find somebody that does it with hounds and go, cause it's crazy. 
That's super cool. We're actually having him on the podcast Thursday, which is which is exciting. You, um, you guys yeah, did get a hold of him then. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, took a while. He said he wasn't on Instagram very much. He said shot me his cell phone number. I was like, no problem. So we got an episode. Yeah, and he's not a big social media guy or anything like that. And I'll tell you what, the dude works his ass off. On top of being a guide, I think I think he told me he works for another guide outfit and he does some other stuff on the side. I mean, he's he's a working fool, dude. Just like I said, salt of the earth, good dude that really wants to make a living doing what he loves kind of like what we all want to do right mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent. so you end up shooting one how how close yeah. can you do you get to it i mean did your do you have to have an angle like compensation when you're shooting up into a tree or, or what yeah so uh, i shot mine five hours into the first day oh that's awesome uh, and one thing yeah it was great except i i live at 700 feet and i shot my black bear at seven thousand feet and i'm already not in good shape <laughs> so it about killed me but when you're up at the tree i mean my shot was 13 yards my first shot i had to shoot the bear five times i'm telling on myself so uh, uh yeah so my shot was 13 yards upwards and it's a whole different world you know we're used to shooting out of trees down when you yeah. shoot up the whole hinge of the hips thing is still like there and you know you, you got your shot process in your head but it's still way way different i mean i shot that bear at a more drastic upward angle than i've ever shot anything at a downward angle ever and i've shot deer at 25 foot up in a tree mm-hmm. so way different world there um, and then i had to shoot it five times you know i studied a ton of bear anatomy before i went out there to like get the idea of where i really needed to put the arrow and then this bears up in the tree and it just looks like a black blob of fur yes, and there's instances. exactly what they look like yeah dude and well there's instances where i couldn't tell where its head was or its ass was and it's like where do i like where do i shoot this thing you know i don't want to shoot it in the butt Mm-hmm. so there's times i'm like looking and trying to find where the head is and the, the nose would poke up like okay so it's pointed this way but it was so so hard for me to try to get any kind of reference point you know on a deer you've got the crease you can't see a crease in a black bear like that, that the i couldn't see it in the tree it was the way it was sitting so i shot low the first time and uh the Michael, the guide had told us stories about bears getting shot and then not dying and running out of the tree and running for like another two miles before their treat again. And I was already half dead from getting to the bear in the tree. So there was no way I was chasing it two more miles. Mm-hmm. So I shot the first time and I kind of stood there in awe and Michael says, shoot it again. So I pulled an arrow. Well, after he said it once, I emptied my quiver, dude. I shot the bear five times. Um, crawled up in the tree and died after that but it was uh i mean it was one of those cases where once i realized that i need to keep shooting until it was done i, I didn't stop until my equipment was empty <laughs> so well why tell and stuff you watch them run off and you don't see any of that death a, mo- a lot of the time and when you're you're the animal is stagnant it's like okay it's not even if you double lung it's not just gonna die in 10 seconds it's not gonna be over yeah yeah dude and that, i'll tell you what that's the other thing that's kind of interesting about that like you just said, you shoot a whitetail, runs off and dies. 99% of the time, we don't get to see the the tail end of that, you know? When that animal's up in the tree, uh, for lack of a better term, with trapped with nowhere to go, I mean, you see it all. So it, it's a different feeling. Um, straight up, I sh- you know, I shot that bear. It fell out of the tree. I just collapsed to my knees. And, like, I had a moment of, like, I don't know, self-reflection. Mm-hmm. It's maybe the best way to put it because it, it is. I mean, that's a that's real, you know, and it is death. You're taking a life. That's a serious thing. But at the same time, you know, I worked hard for that. 
and I'm excited and it's hard, hard not to be happy in the moment, but I felt, you know, there's some remorse there too. Yeah. It's like a yin and a yang. I always tell my wife, she's like, ha, you celebrate. But then there's always this, there's a sigh of relief and it's like, it's happy. It's a little bit of sadness. It's kind of all of it together. And that's kind of part of it. If you're going to kill things. Yeah, man. And, and I think, you know, one thing I think, um, a lot of young hunters especially miss is that end of it. Right. Cause most people cut their teeth, white tail hunting and they run off and die. They don't see the end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think, I think getting to experience that is a very, very powerful thing that every hunter should go through at some point. Yeah. hundred percent. We had a similar, uh, situation on one of the bears that we shot. I shot mine and thankfully, thankfully it was easy. It, it worked out perfectly. It does not always work out that way, but my buddies was a similar situation. I had to shoot it a few times and just watching it. It's like, Oh, this is, I'm uncomfortable with this, but it's, it's part of it. We brought it, we brought it upon ourselves. We chose to do this, you know? And I always tell people I've shot a deer one time. I shot a deer four times and people were like, why? And I said, it was still alive. What do you want yeah. me to do? Say, Oh, I don't want to break another $20 arrow. I don't, I don't care <laughs> at this point. Yeah. I'm trying to kill this animal as fast as I can. Exactly. Well, and I'm one of those guys that like, I'll watch YouTube videos constantly or have them playing in the background while I'm working. And if I happen to glance up when a guy shoots a deer, cause I'm also very much the guy that rewinds to see the shot, um, you know, and like everybody else, oh, that was a bad shot or that was a great shot. If you're the guy that spines a deer and then turns around and celebrates to the camera, I guarantee you, I will never watch anything you ever put on YouTube ever again, because I am so much, you need to put a follow-up shot on that deer. If it's possible, if it didn't fall down behind a tree, you need to put a follow-up shot and finish that animal's life as quickly as possible. So it frustrates me. And I get it. I get it. It's an exciting moment, especially if those guys that have been chasing this particular buck for, you know, five years or four years, they have all this history. But man, there's got to be, there's got to be more value in that animal's life than to just immediately celebrate when it's still on the ground struggling. And what's frustrating even more is when they're just filming it struggling. There's people on YouTube that I specifically watch now, like I've subscribed and, and like I specifically watch their content because I happened upon one of their videos and they spined a doe and then they put an extra arrow in her to finish her off. And then they have this moment where they turn to the camera and they're like, you know, it's not ideal, but I, you know, I, I'm excited. I had, to, I did what I had to do. It's not ideal. I'm like, well, you have a fan for life now because I have nothing but respect for that. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I agree with that. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Let's, let's hard pivot. Let's talk something yeah. that I think is really um, applicable and very timely, especially as season is getting here sooner and sooner. I keep looking down. I'm like six, what it's fixing to be seven July. I it's fixing to be deer season as I know is what I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very, very um, quickly. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of polarizing information out there, not only just in the bow hunting community, but specifically, if you really want to get people, people fired up, start to talk about broadheads, start to talk about fixed versus expandable. Why do you think all that exists? Uh, all the animosity, because, man, I think it's multifold. Um, one part of it is I think humans are just naturally like tribal. So like one side or the other, I think that's just normal for people in general, much, you know, uh, on any topic. Um, I think a lot of it is social media gives voices to everyone, even some people that shouldn't have voices. 
Um, I also think it's reality, man. And that's not to say that I should always have a voice, you know, like I'm sure there's some people that listen to stuff I say and are like, Jesus, this guy is ridiculous. But I think a lot of it just boils down to people like to argue about things too, right? Like I'm, I'm guilty on TikTok. Like if my, my views get low or I get a little bored, well, it's time to put a post up. That's like, Oh, Matthews aren't great because there's another polarizing topic. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything, uh, but I, I think people go about it completely the wrong way in general. Just, I think there's ways to really educate people. I don't think it needs to be a polarizing topic. And I think the, kind of the middle section or segment is where everybody needs to like sit. Right. Cause everybody's setup is, a, is different. Like you shoot something different than I shoot than Jeff and Joe and Jim and Jack all shoot. And, and we're not all going to have the perfect broadhead is going to be the same. And there's just a lot of uh, polarizing viewpoints. I think views, there's another thing, man. Like we're in a social media world, right? So if you're if you have a polarizing topic and you can get views, you're going to push one side or the other. Um, I've taken some classes on growing a social media following, and they actually some of them recommend pick a polarizing topic and take a side strongly. So I think it's a little, yeah, I think it's a little everything. Hmm. So you do a lot of broadhead testing on TikTok, and some of your you have some actually really popular videos and they're very interesting very concise but also you implement a lot of tests in them when you're doing them what have you learned about fixed and expandables and all types of broadheads through your testing do they do they all work can they is there bad ones is there good ones what do you think there's definitely bad and good like that is a real thing right but it's not a major brand thing so when you get into cheaper broadheads, when you get into knockoff broadheads, when you get into um, just sensier quality stuff, that's when you get a bad broadhead. But to say, to say, just for example, a muzzy is a bad broadhead versus a NAP Thunderhead, that's not true. They're both great broadheads. The biggest thing I've learned and was a really big eye opener for me is every broadhead is a great broadhead if it's put where it's supposed to be. Just some are better than others. And I think that's like, that's where people need to sit on it and understand that is the case. Like just because you may shoot a mech and I shoot a fix doesn't mean yours is better than mine or vice versa. Both great. As long as they go where they need to. Um, it's, it's just, uh, it's just one of those things that I kind of wanted it to be more polarizing. <laughs> like I kind of wanted to be like, cause I'm, I'm predominantly a fixed blade guy. Like I'll shoot mechs but it's very situational. So I kind of wanted all my tests to reveal that fixed blades are just the end all be all. And like, I'm right. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. This is not the case. It's not real. Yeah. I've over the last, I'm trying to think how many years have been bow hunting. Gosh, it's gotta be 12, 13 years, something like that. I could, I, I could list them out right now. Shot Swacker, shot Muzzy, shot Rage, shot NAP. I've shot, um, Oh gosh, I, I've shot eight to 10, probably different broadheads and I've killed deer with each one of them. Mm-hmm. They all work. They really do. If you put them in the, in the right place, but yeah, gosh, I have a preference. I've, I have sure. a preference based on my own experience too, though. Sure. Well, and that's the thing. It's a preference, right? Like uh, that goes back to that. Everybody kind of need to, needing to understand that everybody's setups are different. You know, uh, 
I get a ton of questions because I do all that broadhead testing. Like what's the best broadhead or like, what's the best broadhead for me? Or, you know, if you could only pick one broadhead, which would you pick? It's like, I can't, I can't answer any of those. I don't believe there's a such thing as the best broadhead. Uh, the best broadhead for you depends heavily on your setup and what you're trying to shoot and the distances you're trying to shoot. And if I could only pick one broadhead, I can't because I'm the type of guy that has six different broadheads in his quiver when I go in the woods. So, um, I need to go somewhere where I could kill hogs year round with them because I just don't get to test them enough. Yeah. But you know, I just, just like the whole, um, does it shoot like a field point? I've tested on video, I think 60 different broadheads at this point. I've probably tested well over a hundred just in my own messings around because I was testing broadheads way before I was ever videoing any of it. And of all of those broadheads, I've maybe found four or five that don't shoot with my field points provided my bow is tuned. So when people ask, does it shoot like a field point? My answer is always, yeah, if your bow is tuned. And I've gotten a lot of flack about that. Well, it's, that's what I found to be the case in all these broadheads I've shot. I don't, I don't, I can't tell you anything that I don't know to be true. Yeah. I have the biggest argument I've heard for folks that don't want to shoot a fixed. I shoot a fix now, probably the last 10 animals that I've shot with them with a fixed is I want something that I take it out of the box and it shoots exactly like my field points and they're not tuning their bow. They're not doing anything like that. It's, I don't want to have to deal with anything. Um, extracurricular when it comes to my broadheads to which I say you're trying to kill a wild animal it shouldn't be how much effort does this take for me to get it right it should be I'll do whatever I need to do to get it right instead of instead of I want the least amount of effort put in for the greatest of results it 100% should be how you said but that's just not the reality of the world we live in it's not so my argument to those guys is it doesn't take very long to tune a bow I mean as long as the bow wants to cooperate, because I've had some that don't, as long as the bow wants to cooperate, you can tune a bow in 10 to 15 minutes. As long as you are competent enough in your shooting ability and, like I said, the bow wants to cooperate, it doesn't take very long. It really doesn't. On the back end of that, even if you're shooting a mechanical broadhead, you're going to see gains in performance and penetration and accuracy and everything out of having a properly tuned bow. So to me, there's no good excuse not to tune your bow. And if you don't feel comfortable doing it, I guarantee you can get online and find somebody who does that's local to you, or there's a, you can find a shop. And even if you have to drive two hours to go to a good shop, it's worth that two hour drive because maybe you can ask them some questions and watch how they do and learn and just do it yourself from then on out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You're, you're shooting a wild animal. It shouldn't be how little work can I do to get the most results it should be, I need to do as much work as possible to get the best result. So for folks that hear that jargon, sometimes they tune bow, paper tuning, bear shaft tuning. What does it even mean to have a bow properly tuned? Is it an alignment issue? Is it a timing issue? What all goes into it? The Hunter's Advantage podcast is powered by Out on a Limb Manufacturing. Out on a Limb is a family-owned company based right here in Oklahoma that makes tree stands, saddle platforms, climbing sticks, and so much more. Christian, I have a quick question. What's that? What bites sound harder, a hippo or an alligator? No idea. It's a trick question. The Ridge Runner 2.0 bites harder than both of them. But all jokes aside, we use these products all across the land on public or private. These help us get into any tree we want 
and hunt where the deer actually are. Most men go to the grocery store for their meat, but these products help you go to God's grocery store. I have used the Out on a Limb Ridge Runner 2.0 and the Shakar Sticks for the last few years hunting public land bucks, and I've actually shot several bucks out of this setup. If you want to support the podcast and get some Out on a Limb equipment, make sure to go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA10 for 10% off at checkout. Once again, if you want to support the podcast, go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA10 at checkout for 10% off. Now let's get back to the podcast. All of the above. So essentially, the way I kind of look at it is a bow is a machine. And when the machine is, let's equate it to a car, right? If you change your oil on your car and keep up on maintenance, it's going to run better, right? Same principle with a bow. Keep your strings changed. Make sure your cams are in time. Make sure your center shot's set. Um, make sure the machine is as perfect as possible. And then the only thing that can make mistakes is you and you've done your job. And that's basically what tuning a bow is. And that is a lot of jargon too, because I've heard that. I try to aim a lot of my content towards like beginners and, and making it not so daunting. Mm-hmm. And I do get a lot of like, what is paper tuning? Well, paper tuning is just checking the way the arrow comes out of the bow. The most basic way to say it. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of great resources online. If you Google how to paper tune, where it will give you charts that show you what you need to do, depending on the paper tear you get. And to me, that's, that's the starting point. You start there and then you take your bow outside and you go to 20 yards and one field point and one fixed blade broadhead. And I do it with the biggest, nastiest fixed blade that I can possibly find in my grain weight. You shoot your broadhead first and your field point second. And if they're touching or they're within your shooting ability, because you need to be cognizant of what you're capable of, hopefully at 20 yards, that's arrows touching, then it's good to go. You know, check it at 30, check it at 40, check it to your max shooting range, right? Because the other reality of this is we don't, the vast majority of guys are not bombing hundred yard shots at deer, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in the Midwest, most guys are shooting 40 and less. So if you can make your field points and your broadheads in the same group at 40 yards, you know, we'll say a, a three inch group at 40 yards, you're good to go. You know, just make sure you're not getting any super crazy weird arrow flight. And you can see that with your eye, no matter how fast your bow shoots, if your arrow's coming out like this or way high or weird, you can see it. As long as you're not getting any crazy aerial flight and those, and those, you know, they're all grouping together. To me, you're tuned. You're ready to go. I don't get into the weeds a lot because I used to, and it almost ruined archery for me. What, what part of it almost ruined archery for you? Just too much information? Yeah, basically it was like, no matter what I did, it was never good enough. So it was like, I would paper tune. Then I would bear shaft paper tune. Then I'd go outside and bear shaft tune. Then I would broadhead tune. Then I'd French tune. And all these different tuning methods all at once. And it just, every time I do something a little different, it could be that I was just a little fatigued. My grip was a little off. Oh, I need to adjust the 16th of an inch this way or that way or the other way. And it was just, I was fiddling so much that it became not about hunting at all and more about messing with equipment. And that almost ruined hunting for me because every time I went in the woods, it was always like, man, maybe it's the 16th off. Like maybe, maybe it's this or that or the other, or maybe, Maybe I need to do something a hair different. And it just, it was, I was too much in my own head. And I see that a lot too, with new people getting into it, right? They'll get on YouTube and they'll see French tuning and they'll see walk back tuning and broadhead tuning and bear shaft tuning. And then they try to do all this stuff and they're like, I don't know what's going on. My, my arrow is basically hitting the target sideways. So 
I try to keep it as simple as possible. Shoot it through paper, get your bullet hole, go outside, shoot a broadhead and a field point together at your max hunting distance, as long as they are within your capability of shooting. And I think that's something else a lot of people need to recognize is what the real capability of shooting is and be honest with themselves. You're good to go. You know, as long as you're not getting any obscenely crazy flight, they're they're within your capability of shooting, go hunt. Because if if not, you're gonna ruin it. Yeah, I like I like having all my stuff in line and in alignment and taken care of before the season because to me, that's like okay, I can take the equipment out of the equation and now whatever is wrong i can say that's on me that's a you know oh bad shot oh well i think my arrow i saw my arrow kick a little bit when it was going it's like come on <laughs> that wasn't there yeah. it was you <laughs> yep well yeah. and that's the other end of it too right so when somebody brings me their bow to tune i don't like to let them leave unless i know everything's perfect because i've had instances where guys are coming back in later in season and putting their bow down on the table just frustrated this bow made me miss the biggest buck of my life. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I get it. If you miss the biggest buck of your life, of course you're frustrated. It's one of the most heartbreaking things. It might be, it might be worse than childbirth. It's, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's just a lot of times it's almost always us. The machine is perfect. Even an imperfect bow is more perfect than we are. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. I've know a lot of folks too that are just now getting into archery and they get down the rabbit hole of diving too deep into the details, like the tuning. They they're like, Oh, well, I need to get my perfect arrow weight and my perfect broadhead and my perfect FOC before I go this next season. I'm like, Yeah, but you haven't shot a deer yet. You're worrying yeah. about too much of the details before enjoying like this is fun. If you get too far into that, it takes a lot of the fun away. Yeah, so to kind of tie it back into broadheads and and we'll talk arrow building a little bit too is I think that's the biggest downside of the the heavy FOC, heavy broadhead, like heavy arrow movement, right? Is it's a lot, a lot of information. And for the most part, the people, it seems to me that for the most part, the people chasing this information have no right to be doing so. They need to focus on woodsmanship and figuring out how to kill deer and find deer or whatever animal they may be hunting before they ever focus on building a heavy arrow with a 200 grain broadhead up front with 30% FOC. Mm-hmm. Like that is so down the line from what you need to be focusing on. And that comes, and that doesn't come from a place of hate at all. That comes from a place of honestly love. Like I want you to be as successful as possible every time you step in the woods and especially starting out, I think it's just one more, one more thing that's kind of clouding the overall goal of what you're doing. Yeah. Well, when you first start shooting, you're not going to be, um, you're probably not going to be a great shot. So there's not stuff to tinker with in the beginning anyways. Like you're still trying to figure out your form and how to shoot a bow and how to properly execute a release. And you're trying to optimize all these things before you're becoming baseline efficient. And it's like, you can't, you can't do that. I can't learn the breaststroke if I don't know how to swim regular first. They're not going to go and be like, go ahead, show me it. You know, show me the butterfly. It's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a perfect analogy, man. I mean, I see, I've, I'm fortunate. The friend I took out with me, I taught him to hunt basically from bare bones. He'd never really picked up a bow or anything before. So I taught him to shoot, taught him to hunt. And when it comes to like archery, he's just kind of like, yeah, what do you think? And I'm just like, I think you just need to go out and focus on hunting. So I build him a basic arrow setup, nothing crazy. Um, and he goes out and he kills stuff. He's been hunting six years. He killed, he's killed eight animals. I mean, 
he's he's been super successful and now it's getting to the point where if he wanted to tinker i'd be like all right let's start tinkering but he's like no dude just whatever whatever you say works and i think that's like where people need to be though right spend that time when you're starting just getting the experience and shooting animals uh, enjoying it learning to love it if you don't love it or finding out that you don't love it so then you're not spending all this time doing stuff and spending money that you don't need to be spending and then you can start tinkering about three years ago, I went down that heavy arrow, high FOC, like rabbit hole. And I mean, I jumped in deep 200 grain broadhead. I was shooting a 556 grain arrow with 23.4% FOC, 320 grains up front. Like I went down the rabbit hole, feathers in the back, no wraps as light as possible. And I killed deer and I had a great experience with it. And you know what? Done the same thing with a 450 grain arrow with 11% FOC through the through the animal and in the dirt is through the animal and in the dirt whether it's six inches or two feet yeah you could have killed a toyota prius with that first arrow you're talking about yeah man i mean i shot it through some gnarly nasty stuff heck a lot of my broadhead tests were done with arrows of that vein you know just i just i've done it i don't see the difference i think i think a lot of modern equipment has eliminated the necessity for that level of insanity Mm -hmm. i think I think that's, that kind of goes back to the whole broadhead thing. And, and I think people need to understand everybody's setup's a little different. Um, same way with aerial building and your, your total setup, right? Like maybe you're the 650 grain arrow guy with heavyweight up front. Cool. But it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of the overarching theme. A lot of what I do now is to tell people that like kind of whatever you're comfortable with works, man, just make sure you're, you are doing your part and putting it where it belongs for being so polarizing in one direction or the other with arrow bills and broadhead selection, I'm very much the middle of the road guy. Like I don't see, I don't see the need to be polarizing in either direction. You know, I will caveat that by saying when you have a setup that is in either direction. So for example, if you are somebody that's shooting 23 inch draw with 40 pounds, you need to be a little more cognizant about what you're doing. Or if you're a guy that's shooting 32 inches at 80 pounds, you have a lot more freedom than basically anybody else. So there's extremes, but for the most of us in that middle road, not a whole lot of bad options out there. So if I'm a, let's say this is my, this is my second season bow hunting. I'm trying to figure out a broadhead selection and I walked in and I started talking to Trent. How would you lead me or what would your be your decision-making process on what broadhead is right for me? Obviously there's going to be a dozen that are right for me, but how are you going to maybe cut off and eliminate the ones on the fringes? Well, the first thing I'm going to ask you is uh, what's your draw length and what's your poundage. If you don't know that I'm going to find it out. So I'll take your bow. I'll measure your draw length. I'll take your bow. I'll measure it on a scale. And we'll say you're a 28 inch, 70 pound guy. Like that seems to be relatively common. And then I'm going to look at your arrow setup. Are you shooting something really lightweight? Are you shooting something really heavy? We'll say you're shooting a 450 grain arrow. That's kind of run of the mill. I think right in the middle ish, maybe a little on the heavy side for some guys at that point. It's kind of like a fixed blade. A fixed blade is going to be a good choice no matter what. And um, some fixed blades. I like just off the top of my head, muzzy trocar, Magnus black Hornet, uh, Magnus buzz cut. You know, Radical Archery Designs, which is not a very well-known company, but man, they make some really, really good broadheads. They make something called a Rival. They make a Madman. 
um, you know, even on old school, like Muzzy, like a Muzzy MX-3 or uh, NAP Thunderhead, those are all great options. Slick Tricks. I mean, there's a billion good options, right? So basically, I would tell you any fixed blade that you think looks cool would be a pretty good option. And that's what I tell a lot of people, right? Because whether we want to admit it or not, there is a lot of people that care a lot about aesthetics. I build a lot of custom arrows and weird colors just because they like the aesthetics, right? So my, my answer to those guys is if you want to shoot a fixed blade, pick something that looks cool and shoot it because you're good. Like, just don't pick up an Allen and don't, don't go on Amazon and buy a knockoff Montec or anything like that. Um, but pick up a fixed blade and shoot it. As long as you think it looks cool, it's probably going to work. You're good to go. Now, when it comes to mechanicals, I'm going to ask you more questions. Like, what do you think your average shot distance is going to be? So if you're shooting 20 yards, I don't see why you couldn't shoot like a Ridge Tripan or like a Grim Reaper Whitetail Special or like a Sever 2, 2.0, you know, a big cut mechanical. Um, you can get away with it, especially at 2870 with a relatively heavy arrow. No problem. So even out to 30 yards, heck, even out to 40, you could probably get away with it. When you start stretching it past 40, things get a little shaky. I tend to try to direct people to two holes versus one hole. So even out at 40, things can be a little weird. Um, if you want something a little bit more, I guess, friendly, then I start looking at like the Sever 1.5 or the Grim Reaper one and three eighths inch cut or uh, a one and a half inch, you know, Swacker makes a really nice all steel one and a half inch broadhead. So something with a little smaller cut, if you, for some reason, really like the mechanical, I think is going to be a great option. So I think for most average guys, right, the 28 inch, 70 pound, 450, there's a lot of broadhead options that kind of, those guys hit the, there's not really a bad option as long as you know what you're capable of type of guy now if you're if you're out west and you're shooting elk i'm going to tell you not to shoot a mechanical at all Mm -hmm. i know guys that do it i know guys that kill elk every year with mechanicals there's no way i am trusting a mechanical broadhead with an elk period just not i'm not going to do it i would never recommend it to anybody it's been done i won't i'll never tell you to do that Um, if you're a guy that's shooting you know 60 70 80 yards at whitetail for some reason you're capable of that i'm going to tell you to shoot a fixed blade because now we're talking about penetration issues at those distances with mechanicals i think a fixed blade is going to be a better choice so it's all situational and it's all i mean truly situational whether it's setup based whether it's distance based whether it's i mean even animals you're hunting right if you're a guy in arizona hunting coos deer even if you're shooting 60 yards i'm going to tell you to shoot mechanicals because coos deer are tiny tiny animals I think I've owned dogs bigger than some coos deer. So, you know, if you're, if you're that guy on the flip side, let's talk about hogs. Hogs are insanely tough animals, but they're not overly big. I would shoot a fixed blade at a hog no matter what. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's all, everything is situational. Yeah. What, what about for the light arrow guys, like sub sub four fifty? are you ever going to recommend a mechanical for something that light? No, I would never recommend a mechanical for sub 450. Um, like, and I've built some arrows for guys that are right at the 400 range. And I can't obviously force anybody to shoot anything. But those guys, if you want to pass through, but you still want that flat trajectory, I think you need to go mechan- or a fixed blade. I don't think a mechanical is going to do what you need to do. I've always kind of been a heavy arrow guy, even inadvertently, right? For the longest time, I just built arrows I thought looked cool. I remember... I built Carbon Express pile drivers. This has been 
years and years and years ago. They were an all camo shaft, so I put orange fletchings on them. I thought it looked really cool. I didn't know I was shooting a 550 grain arrow. They just looked cool. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of always inadvertently been a heavier arrow guy. And I always recommend people hit at least 450 grains, but some people have done lighter and I don't get to force anybody to do anything. I can just make suggestions. So yeah, sub 450 for the average guy, I'm telling you fixed blade. Again, your kind of options are, are endless. I do know that when you start getting 300 feet a second or faster or right in the area, there are certain broadheads that do tend to be more forgiving than other broadheads. So speed is a factor in selection as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never really had an it. I've always struggled to make an arrow light enough for myself because I have a I have a 30 inch draw. Um, yeah, and I shoot 70 pounds, so I'm obviously shooting to have you know a lower spine. And so I shoot 250 spine arrows and, you know, they're 29 and a half inches and it's a lot of arrow right there. It's hard to get that yeah. under 500 for me. And so I'm like, yeah. all right, I'm shooting a light arrow this year. It's 525. It's like the lightest <laughs> I've been able to get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a struggle, you know? I mean, so guys like you, if you came to me and said you wanted a light arrow, I'd probably look at something like a Black Eagle X Impact. I think a 250 spine Black Eagle is like 9.3 grains an inch. Mm-hmm. So, but then I tell you to go with a focus system up front and that's 80 grains. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're a damned if you do damned, if you don't type of guy. And the advantage for guys like you though, is because of your draw length and your specs and stuff like that. uh, There's not really a broadhead out there. I tell you, you couldn't shoot. That's interesting. So you're just, you've got that long draw length. It's all about energy, right? And I, we don't have enough time to debate kinetic energy versus momentum because that's like four podcasts, but it's all about energy period. And you're a guy that's got that long draw length and you've got 70 pounds going for you and you've got a relatively heavy arrow. You should be able to push even a big two inch cut mechanical through anything white tail size or smaller that you would ever want to. Yeah. White tail toughness. Yeah. I've seen it with, I've, stuck swacker broadheads in the dirt behind deer at 20 yards and i've i've got complete pass-throughs with fixed blades at 40 i mean it's just and another thing to consider for people that are listening that are fairly new is no no two shots are the same no two angles are the same no two impacts are the same the broadhead rotation how it hits whether vertical or horizontal i don't think if you shot a deer a hundred times you'd ever get one that was perfectly the same so that's the same exact spot exactly so People say that all the time. Well, I, you know, this broadhead would have done that. We don't know. We don't know that. Yeah. So one thing I've picked up from uh, Ranch Ferry, Troy, is that blood trails are variable and he's spot on. And that's, so I get a lot of questions like, what's the best blood trail broadhead? Like what broadhead produces the best? There isn't one because it's so variable. I can shoot a deer with a tripan and have a, uh, looks like somebody dumped a paint bucket out and I can shoot another deer in the same exact spot. And it looks like I never even shot the deer blood trails are too variable and you should never be selecting your broadhead based on blood trails. They give because I can show you videos of, of a two blade one in an eighth inch cut broadhead. That looks like you murdered somebody. And I can show you videos of Grim Reaper whitetail special where I followed two pen drops to the deer. Both those deer were dead in 40 yards. But you're talking a vast difference in cut diameter and the blood trails were what you would think would be polar opposite of one another. Well, I shoot the NAP Thunderhead for the last couple of years and 
I, I personally think it's some of the worst blood trails I've ever had on, on the broadhead itself. But what I know is with good shot selection, when I double lung a deer, I don't care if it goes a hundred yards. If it goes under a hundred yards, I'm finding it. I don't care on the blood trail or whatever's happened. I'll go get a dog. I'll worry about that later. My number one priority is like lethality and shot selection and, and making a really good shot. And after that point, I know the animal is going to expire. I'm going to find the animal. That's not the, you know, people, I think people think about it as my broadhead is my insurance policy. I make a bad shot. I'll get a good blood trail, even with a bad shot. And that's probably not the right way to think about it. That's the complete wrong way to think about it. Uh, You know, I have a, I have a very good friend that um, shoots kudu contours and they're awesome broadheads, but I, even in my experience with those, they don't leave a good blood trial. He's had a couple where they leave great and some where they don't, but everything we've, both of us have shot and cumulatively between the two of us, there's like eight deer dead. Nothing has ran more than 45 yards. Well, if they're dying in 45 yards, who cares if there's a blood trail? Yeah. You know, if you're watching them die, like it doesn't matter. And I think you're right. I think people look at a blood trail as like a crutch. And I guess my response to that is if you're shooting deer, right, you shouldn't necessarily need a blood trail. Mm-hmm. That's just been my experience. Yeah. And honestly, in, in 2023 with how widely available and how awesome tracking dogs are, I'm like, listen, if I make a lethal shot, I'm finding that deer. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm finding it now, you know, five years ago I'm hunting public land and, you know, native grass is seven foot tall. Yeah. I start making, I don't have a good blood trail. It starts to make me worry. And if I'm going to recover that deer, you know, five years later, I, it's not really that sort of conversation anymore. Well, and then not only that, thermals are now legal in most states for blood tracking, and they're awesome. Um, there's also little tricks you can do. Like, you can take a bottle of diluted hydrogen peroxide and a spray bottle and spray it and look for the bubbles. And I've found pin drops of blood I would never see with my naked eye doing that. I recommend that to guys that have colorblindness issues. You know, they can't differentiate blood on a leaf, but when you spray it, it's hard to miss those bubbles. So, I mean, there's so many little tricks you can do on top of the dog thing, which is like the ultimate, nothing can beat a dog's nose when it comes to tracking a deer. Nothing. Yeah. So hundred percent. It's one of those things where it's, you said it, it's like, you're going to find that deer as long as you did your job. You, you know, what's interesting though, is like, as much as I say blood trails are variable, there are certain situations where I'm more comfortable shooting a mech versus a fixed blade. So like seven foot tall grass, as long as I have a clear shooting lane, I would prefer a mechanical, right? Because even though blood trails are, trails are variable, a larger cut by nature is going to spill more blood as long as I do my end. So I mentioned way earlier that I take like fixed blades and mechanicals. I take a whole quiver full of different broadheads. I shoot them situationally in different places so Mm -hmm. i hunt public some of my public is really nasty and thick some of my public is like field edge if i'm hunting thick nasty stuff and i can't cut lanes which i can't hear i'm shooting a fixed blade because then if it happens to hit a stick i feel like i have a little bit better chance of it doing what it needs to do once it gets to the animal Mm -hmm. or getting to the animal or if i'm on the ground and have to shoot through a little bit of grass feel like I have a better chance of getting the animal with a fixed blade. If I'm shooting a field edge, if I'm sitting a field edge, I'll shoot a mechanical all day long. I don't have to worry about hitting anything, deflecting, blades opening. Why not? I don't see a reason not to. But there's a confidence in my ability to make good shots and knowing what my ability is and not making bad shots because I'm overestimating my ability. 
How big of a role do you think that plays in people in archery? Like just having confidence in what you're shooting when you pull that arrow out of the quiver, knowing I think I've got the right setup for the application. Massively. I think the number one thing people underestimate is confidence in your equipment. And I think it's the most important thing when it comes to being lethal in the woods. Like I don't think anything else matters more because if you walk in those woods or, you know, out in the mountains, wherever you're hunting and you don't have confidence in what you're killing, or what you're doing is going to kill what you're hunting, you're wasting your time. I've went in the woods before with cheap Chinese broadheads, a miscellaneous quiver with five different spines, five different arrow links. And I'm like, well, I got one good arrow. And after that, I'm, I'm yep. throwing up prayers. Yeah. It's not a good feeling. I mean, we've all been there, dude. That's how I started, right? I started with a, Walmart bow, hand-me-down aluminum arrows from a guy my dad worked with and like broadheads from my grandpa and this guy that he worked with. And I mean, most of those aluminum arrows, I'm picking them up and rotating them to see if they're straight. And if they're not, I'm like, okay, that's a practice arrow. Mm -hmm. That's a practice arrow. Like I wouldn't even dream of going in the woods with arrows that I've not shot now. But back then it was like seven different spine you know, I had one of those giant old quivers that held seven arrows and it was like seven different spine aluminum arrows with seven different broadheads. Some of them were bent, some weren't. And it was like you said, I have one good arrow. (laughs) And if this arrow doesn't do it, I think everybody kind of starts there or at least did until there's such a a wide array of available information. But I, I don't, it's definitely not the right way to go about it. No, no. And I would, so what would you, if you had to, in 30 seconds, tell somebody, a beginner, everything they need to know about broadheads and maybe talk about the, there's not a one size fits all formula. How would you kind of wrap that up? If you only had a few seconds to say that. If I had to say it all in one shot, I think the way you don't need to spend a bunch of money on a broadhead, but don't spend very little. $40 $40 a three pack is about average pick a broadhead you like and go with it. Thinking about it too much is going to just hurt you in the long run. Um, that's, that's really where I would start them. You know, like if I've only got 30 seconds, you can only tell them one thing that would be it. Because ultimately, even though a mechanical may not be perfect for that person's setup, if they put it behind the ribs and do what they need to do, it's probably going to do the job. Like there's a 95% chance it's going to do what it's supposed to. So just be, pick out a set of broadheads you like, screw them on, make sure they shoot right and go have fun. I think we need to have fun first and then worry about the equipment later. That's exactly what I was going to add to that. I was going to say, pick something and only change something based on maybe a negative experience if it's not working for you and pick something and have fun. The equipment selection, the being a gear guy, I try to automate all that stuff before I have actually get in the woods. Cause it allows me to have more fun when I'm like, okay, I got right. good stuff. I got stuff that works. I know my equipment's in check. Now I get to go have fun. And that's kind of how I think about it. I, I, I think about let's have it all done before we get to the woods so we can have a good experience. Not the other way around. Yeah. hundred percent. And you know, I get so many people that are like, well, what broadhead should I shoot this year? What did you shoot last year? Well, I shot QED Exodus, which, by the way, is one of my favorite broadheads ever. Do you have a bad experience? No. Well, why are you changing? And I get it because I'm the guy shooting six different broadheads. But, like, you don't really need to change anything unless you have a bad experience. And if you have a bad experience, let's talk about why and what it was. And you'll find a lot of times that it wasn't the broadhead's fault. 
like 99% of the time, it's not the broadhead's fault. I know there's been very little instances where I've got pictures of, um, unless a broadhead broke or something like that. And people shoot one in the shoulder and like, like, man, I didn't get great penetration. I'm like, okay, well, what were you expecting? Do you expect to just blow through both of them with that mechanical broadhead? Like, yeah, I thought so. Okay, fine. Yeah. So that's the other thing about broadhead selection. I think a lot of people don't think about, right. As, as we hunt and as we gain more experience, we tend to shoot like, farther forward on an animal or further back on an animal, particularly deer. Um, and I think your selection needs to be based on where you tend to shoot. So I tend to hug a shoulder on a deer a lot closer than most guys. Because of that, I tend to prefer fixed blade broadheads because I have more confidence that if I nick the shoulder, they're going to do what they need to do. On the flip side, one of my very good friends tends to shoot back. So he shoots the biggest cut mechanically and get his hands on, particularly rage in his, in his example. I think that matters. Like you need to take that into account. Once you shoot enough animals, you'll kind of realize what kind of like hunter you are. And if you really like to hug tight to the shoulder, go fixed blade. If you like to shoot a little further back, cause it makes you feel more comfortable, go mechanical. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. I didn't think we're, we're all different in our habits and you can actually mend your gear based on your own personality and how you, how you hunt. I didn't even, I've never really considered that. That's a good point. Yeah, well, and that's another question. So for an ex- more experienced hunter or huntress or whoever that asks me, like, that's where, do you tend to shoot deer towards the shoulder or a little further back? And I've gotten about 50-50 as far as, like, responses go, which surprises me because a lot of everything is, you know, tied up to that shoulder. But some people, and a lot of it is they had a bad experience where they shot a deer in the shoulder, got no penetration. So now they're scared of that shoulder and they want to shoot further back. Well, you're going to do better off with a bigger broadhead if you're going to shoot at the rear of the lungs because it's going to give you a better opportunity to get the rear of those lungs mm-hmm. mechanical. But if you shoot tight to the shoulder with no fear, fixed blade. That's that's one of those little things that just kind of helps drive home. Like if somebody comes to me and says, what should I shoot for a broadhead? Well, that's one more thing to think about. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's uh, let's talk about arrows for just a little bit here. Sure. What, what do you recommend or what's your decision-making process when it comes to arrows i mean this is one that has there's so much information about there and there seems to be two camps one light to moderate and heavy and if you don't you're not ethical what do you what do you think about those yeah so i'm gonna like i've gotten some major flack especially here recently i build arrows based on like just because i feel like shooting that arrow so so for me Personally, and this is a personal thing, like I'm shooting Black Eagle X impacts this year with an 80 grain focus system up front. And it was just because I wanted to see if I liked those arrows. They come out to like 520 something grains. I don't particularly care about like grain weight or FOC or any of that stuff for myself anymore because I've realized from shooting a bunch of different arrows that as long as I do my job, it all performs the same way, right? But for somebody to come to me like like you just did and say, hey, you know, what should I do for arrows or, or what do you think works the best? I always say 450 to 500, unless you feel the necessity to go heavier. And if you want to go heavier, why? I will build anybody, whatever they want. I build a ton of custom arrows every year. I have no problem building what you want, but if you're going to ask me for opinions, let's really dig into why you think you need it. If you're going to tell me you need a 650 grain arrow because you watch somebody on YouTube say you need a 650 grain arrow, arrow, I'm going to tell you 10 reasons why you don't need it. 
if you're going to tell me you need a 300 grain arrow because faster is better, I'm going to tell you 10 reasons why it's not, why you don't need that arrow. But if you're going to tell me you want a 650 grain arrow because, you know, you like to shoot close to the shoulder and you want to make sure you can get through it and your shots are 20 yards max. All right, let's build it up. But for the average person walking up to me with the average draw length, draw weight, let's build you something 450 to 500 and call it a day. Whatever brand you want, there's not a company out there that's a major company that makes a bad arrow anymore. Like those days are gone for everything equipment. There's no bad bow companies that are major companies, arrow companies, broadheads, fletchings, like nothing is bad anymore. It just doesn't exist. Technology has reached the point where it's accessible for everyone. Everybody can make great stuff. So, you know, if you like Black Eagle, cool, we can do that. Victory, Easton, whatever. But I usually shoot that 450, 500 grain range for the average person walking off the street that just wants to shoot a good arrow. So you're you're pointing people in a moderate direction and unless there's an extreme outlier case of, hey, I'm hunting out west, I want to shoot 98 yards on a mule deer, I need something light, or, hey, I'm shooting my max is 12 yards at a 400-pound whitetail in Canada. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you're a guy that if you're out West hunter, I might tell you, Hey, let's air on the lighter inside of that. Maybe even like 425 grains, because I want to preserve some of your trajectory, especially if you're starting to get in the guys that are like 60 pounds or like a 25 inch draw length. Like I want to preserve some trajectory for you because there's times out there you're shooting gaps between pine tree boughs and then you're shooting, you know, maybe you're you range the elk for 40 yards, but those are big animals. They take five steps and there's 55 yards. Now we want a little bit better trajectory. So when you're guessing that yardage, you have a higher chance of lethality on the flip side, you're shooting 400 pound whitetail in Saskatchewan, or you're shooting 400 pound hogs down in Texas. Um, particularly like the feeder guys that are hunting over feeders or bait sites, whether no matter where it be, like if you're a 20 yard max guy, let's crank it up. I mean, if you want to shoot tight to the shoulder, let's do that. You know, let's do the, the heavy arrow high FOC method then. I mean, there's no reason not to, but I think the heavy arrow high FOC falls short out West. Just like I think the lighter arrows, not that they fall short necessarily in a feeder situation. I just don't think they're necessary, you know? So again, it's like the broadheads situational, but for the average guy that's in the white tail wood shooting 40 yards, I think that 450 to 500 grain range is like right on the money. Yeah, it sounds very important to, if you want something extreme, knowing why, not just, hey, my favorite hunting influencer that hunts nothing like where I hunt told me to, and this is what I'm going to get now. Yeah, and and I see a lot of that because, again, there's just so much information out there, and it's so easy for a new guy to go down a YouTube rabbit hole and then decide that he needs a 900-grain arrow. It's so easy for that same guy to go down a rabbit hole and decide he needs a 350-grain arrow. <laughs> Yeah. The, re the reason I ask questions like that when people come to me for advice is because I want to educate. Like, I don't have a problem. Like I said, I don't have a problem building you that 650 grain arrow, but my ultimate goal is to make you as lethal po as possible in the woods. And if I think that arrow is going to hinder your lethality, I'm going to try to steer you away from it. It just makes more sense. I think you're going to have a better overall experience. And that's ultimately my goal is to make sure everyone has the best experience they possibly can when they go in the woods. Uh, I equate it to like a numbers game. You know, we'll say just off the top of my head, I think the average, the average like success rate with a bow is 10%, right? So they, so they say 10% of bow. <laughs> they say the saying is 10% of bow hunters kill 90% of animals. 
So we'll say, we'll say it's just 10%. Like I know for elk out West for sure, it's 10%. Um, so if you're, if your likelihood is 10%, so that means one out of every 10 years, you get a chance. Why would we not want to do everything we can to statistically maximize that opportunity? That's the way I look at it. That means making sure your bow's tuned. That means let's get you a good broadhead and arrow build for your situation. And let's, let's rock it. Yeah. I heard a really good quote the other day at church and I mentioned it on a couple of different podcasts so far, but I heard a quote that goes, uh, how you do anything is how you do everything. And I think if you're one of those guys that loves to half ass it, I don't know why you would do anything at all. <laughs> like that's yeah. just the way that I think about it. If you're going to, oh, I don't want to put in that. Okay. That's fine. But don't be surprised. That's fine. As long as you, you're not surprised on the back end when you're unsuccessful and something doesn't work out. Yeah. So along those lines, my, one of my favorite personal quotes is just, I either no asset or whole asset. There's no half assing. <laughs> like I'm, I'm that guy. So my response to those guys that want to half asset is take it to a guy like me that'll whole asset and let them do it for you. Yeah. Because then on the back end of that, ultimately now I know you're in the woods, at least being as lethal as you possibly can. Right. So I feel like I've done my due, due diligence to make sure you're not out just wounding animals. Mm-hmm. Like that's, if, if I can't convince you to put in the time, at least let me put in the time for you for the animal's sake. And that's ultimately where, where it lies for me. Right. I want you to have a good time in the woods, but if you're not going to put in the work to have that time and it, and it does take work to have a good time in the woods, then now it's all about the animals. And I just want you to not hurt as many as possible. Yeah, that's a good point. It sounds like from an arrow perspective, it's, I don't, I think people think of arrows, they think of, you know, everything's, it's just an arrow. That's what it is. But it's, I think of it a little differently. And I think how you explained it is there's different use cases. You know, you don't use a tablet for the same reason you use a laptop for the same reason you use a desktop. They're all different. And just like you're saying, there's 29 North American big game animals and, there's probably a lot of overlap in different arrows for each one of those, but they're, you know, if you broke them up into small, big, large, and then distances, I think you could really hone in on kind of what somebody needs for their exact setup. And I think that's kind of what you're doing, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm doing. You know, if, if you were to tell me, Hey, I'm going up to the Yukon and I'm going to hunt a moose, maybe we should get up into the like 550 grain range because generally speaking, bow shots on moose are relatively close, right? But they're giant animals. So let's get a little heavier arrow. Let's put a fixed blade up front and we'll call it a day. On the flip side, if you're going down to Arizona and shooting coos deer, a lot of those shots are 50, 60, even longer ranges. And it's on a small animal. So let's do something that's got a little bit better trajectory. Maybe put a mechanical up front. Mm -hmm. um, if you're if you're a small frame shooter and you're shooting 40 pounds at, at 22 inches or 25 inches or whatever draw weight, draw length, I'm not going to build you a 600 grain arrow because now you have a 10 yard pin and you have a 15 yard pin and maybe we can get a 20 yard pin in there. I'm going to build you an arrow that makes sense for you, which may be 300 grains, but we're for sure going to put a fixed blade up front and it's for sure going to be a cut on contact fixed blade on the flip side. If you're a 30 inch draw and you're shooting 70 pounds and you're shooting a 500 plus grain arrow, because it's hard to get lower than that. I don't know. Let's throw a, whatever you want up front. Let's throw a Grim Reaper whitetail special on front. If you're shooting 40 or, or closer whitetail, mm -hmm. I, you're going to smoke them or a fixed blade or whatever you want. Like I said, guys like you, I kind of envy 
because there's even some broadheads in situations i like i won't shoot a mechanical period past 40 yards in an animal i just won't do it not at a whitetail Mm-hmm. but somebody like you that's got your kind of specs, especially if you're shooting like a modern high-end compound bow, I'd feel comfortable stretching that out to 60 because I feel like with the energy you'd push out of that bow, you're going to get a, at least a pass through, maybe not the arrow on the other side, but you're going to get two holes. I don't have that same confidence in me, 28 inches at 70 pounds. Yeah. But then you take a fixed blade and we're on even playing field again. That's right. Yeah. I used, I shot my bow through a, a chrono. I think it was last year and uh, with my arrows and I got 262 out of it. And I got so like sad for a second. I was like, Oh my gosh, my bow is so slow. Like, I was like, <laughs> like, this sucks. And I went and I shot uh, with a, with, I think I shot six deer last year and I got like five pass throughs through the dirt. And I was like, this isn't bad. I, no. the, the speed doesn't matter. This is, I'm not building an animal to get the ranch fairy always says you're not building an animal to get or an arrow to get to the animal. You're building one to get through and seeing is believing with an arrow. I think people just got to get something that is like you said, is moderate, get a good broadhead on there. Something they have confidence in and go see. Yeah. And I mean, spot on and ranch fairy is spot on with that saying too. I know Troy, not super well, but I've met him a handful of times. He's an insanely nice guy. And at the end of the day, all he really wants to do is help. And he says a lot of stuff that I totally agree with. Like you're building an arrow to get through an animal. Mm-hmm. That's my goal. Always is two holes always. But I also three inches in the dirt is the same as three foot in the dirt. Like I don't, I don't have to go extreme that's kind of where him and I start to differ a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's, it's just this, there's this wild thing. that's like, I don't know, back to the polarizing thing. It just kind of baffled me. Cause at the end of the day, we're all hunters, right? Like we need to be on the same side, but it seems like we can't step aside from that to just get along. I agree. I agree. And there's not enough of us out there to not get along. So people need yeah. to get along. And, um, I don't know when people, I show some people a deer that I kill like, what kind of bow did you shoot that with? What arrows, what broadheads? It's like, Hey, I'm showing you a, a dead animal here. This is pretty sweet. Uh, it doesn't really yeah, matter. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I'm a gear nerd, so I would totally ask those questions, but, uh, not for the same reasons as what you're talking about because yeah, yeah. The next favorite question is, well, how far was it? How far did it run? How much blood was there? Mm -hmm. Call it back to like broadhead thing again. Well, you'd have more blood if you shot this broadhead instead. Have you tried these? You got to try These are way better. (laughs) It's like, okay, man. The the fortunate experience I have is I can usually say, yes, I've tried those. (laughs) Yeah, that's nice. (laughs) Playing with so many of them. And I mean, I don't get me wrong. I have not shot an animal with all these broadheads. Like that would be um, insane. I don't. I don't think I have enough time nor money to go do that with all these broadheads. Right. But I, if I can't shoot an animal with it, I usually send them to somebody who will. And it's somebody that I trust and knows their equipment and has been doing it long enough to understand, like if it's a broadhead problem, if it's a them problem and it's somebody that'll give me the whole rundown. So they're people I trust with information so that when they relay it to me, I can relay it to somebody else and know that it's not BS. So like I try to do as much due diligence as I possibly can. It's, it's a blast, but it's also a little taxing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. Well, um, so, I appreciate you coming on and talking about this polarizing topic. 
um, broadheads, arrows. Uh, were you going to say something else, by the way? Did I cut you off? I was just going to say, don't feel too bad about your speed. This is the first year and probably the last eight that I've shot a boat over 270 feet a second. Oh, nice. Hey, we're in the same boat then. Not too bad. Yeah, dude. Speed is not a thing that matters. Accuracy is, and I can drop dimes. That's all that matters. That's right. That's right. Um, well, Trent, I really appreciate you coming on. I've seen you on TikTok for probably a few years now, so it's really good to yeah. connect with you. I'd love to connect with you in person sometime, but for folks that want to follow along with what you're doing, maybe get a set of custom arrows from you, maybe get a bow from you, something cool, well, where can they do all that and connect with you? So you can find me on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. It's Chest Thumper Outdoors on all of those platforms. You can email me at chestthumperoutdoors at gmail.com. You can text me at 217-378-0092. And one thing I really want to drive home is if you have questions, I'm more than happy to take the time to talk to you. You never have to spend a single penny with me ever to ask me a question. Again, my ultimate goal is that everybody be as successful as possible in the woods. That doesn't mean you have to spend any money with me at all. If you just want to, you know, chew the fat, you just want to talk my ear off. Heck, if you just want to send me a picture of a doe you killed last Saturday because it was cool doe that you killed last Saturday, like sweet, I'm stoked on that. I live, eat, breathe, sleep, archery and bow hunting. So you're just going to make my day. So by all means, don't ever be afraid to reach out. That's awesome. Well, um, you guys go check Trent's stuff out. And uh, like I said, man, I really appreciate it. Thank you for jumping on. We'll do this again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, I'd love to. Let's find some more polarizing fun topics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode.